Hey gang, welcome to the Gill Athletics Connections podcast, the show that brings you, the men and women of track and field, and explores their unique stories. This show is brought to you by Gill Athletics. Head on over to gillathletics.com to find all your track and field equipment needs. I'm your host, Mike Cunningham, National Sales Manager for Gill Athletics, and this week, well, this week is part two. We're doing a three-part series, episodes 25, 26, and 27. If you haven't listened to part one of Harry Mara, stop right now, go back and listen to it. Uh, you'll be grateful and better for it. Just, just trust me, okay? Uh, this episode, this part two, we talk about Harry's philosophy, his ethos of coaching that he has summarized in PKTC. Now, I'm not going to tell you what that stands for. You're going to have to listen to the podcast, but trust me, you're going to want to listen to this podcast every year, this episode specifically, every year before you start your fall training or your preseason training. It is going to really help you develop your overall program and you're going to be you're going to be better for it. Trust me. Hey, so enough with me. Without further ado, please help me welcome part two of the wise, the wonderful Harry Mara. Hello. Hey, Harry. Hey, Mike. How are you? I'm great. Welcome back. Thank you. Good to be back. Uh, thanks <laughs> for that's right. Thanks for joining us once again on the Gill Athletics Connections podcast. We are in the smack dab in the middle of a three-part series with the great coach Harry Mara. If you have not had a chance to listen to part one, episode number twenty-five, stop right now. Go download that and listen. It'll be a great preamble to what we're going to discuss today. Uh, today on part two, Harry is going to grace us. He has had a 60-year career in track and field, and he has boiled it down <laughs> to four principles. So uh, we're going to take a back seat and let Harry have the floor here and discuss the four principles necessary to fully develop the art of coaching. Harry, take it away. Hey, Mike, thanks for the introduction, and um, I hope that uh, this turns out to be uh, pretty helpful for the coaches uh, out there and as they go forward, especially during this uh, precarious time we're in right now. Okay, as a, a short summary of what I want to talk about, my talk today is going to be, as Mike alluded to, about four interrelated aspects that I believe each of us as coaches needs to fully develop to excellence if we expect to have success as a coach. And these four domains or these four aspects are passion, knowledge, trust, and communication. And I label them as PKTC, passion, knowledge, trust, and communication. Uh, I think probably what would be pretty good, I would recommend, go ahead and listen to the podcast. And then maybe uh, after the podcast, review it again with a paper and pencil so you can take notes and uh, get it oriented more point-specific towards your particular needs. Okay, introduction to this topic. Every one of us as coaches needs to have a philosophy as to what we are doing and why we are doing what we do. That is coaching, teaching, helping kids. And if we don't have a philosophy of some sort, each person's philosophy is going to be different. But if we don't have one, then in effect, we're really 
aimlessly wandering in the forest. And any success we have without this philosophy will just be purely luck. Long, long ago in college, I remember a professor I had in an introduction to physical education course, I think it was freshman year, assigning us just that task. She said, think about and then go home and write down what you believe to be your philosophical base as to why you are going into the teaching profession and more point specifically into the physical education coaching teaching profession. Then come to class next week, prepared to stand in front of the class and explain your rationale for this philosophy. Well, as simple as that assignment seems on the surface, it was a game changer for me as a young student. Right then, it forced me into defining my mission, my goals, and my direction as a future teacher and a future coach. That mission statement that each of us as coaches have, especially early on in your career, is constantly evolving, changing. A little bit here, a little bit there, tweaking it one way or the other to make it more point specific to define who you are and just what it is you are trying to accomplish. Fundamentally, it will remain intact. This philosophy will fundamentally remain intact, but you'll have to tweak it here and there depending upon any number of factors. Could be the level of athlete you're working with, high level, medium level, just beginning athlete. Maybe the environment you're in, you're in, going for the Olympic Games, going for the state high school championship, going to make the junior high school team. All of those could be tweaked down to different aspects of point specificness. Over the years, my purpose, my mission as to why I went into coaching has, coaching has changed very, very little. I clearly remember standing in front of that class over 50 plus years ago. I'm dating myself, I guess. Uh, stating that my reasons for going into coaching and teaching were simply stated in two words, to help. To help kids of all levels of abilities reach whatever potential they have. This statement remains true to me today. I'm there to help. I never, as a coach, as a young coach, middle years or later years, I never had goals of developing an NCAA champion, developing a state high school champion, developing a conference champion, developing a world record holder, developing an Olympic champion, developing a world champion. Never did those goals even pop up on my radar. But guess what? All of those things happened along the way. And I look back and say, you know, maybe your preparation was right. Maybe your preparation was good. And those four domains that I'm going to talk about here in a couple of minutes, passion, knowledge, trust, and communication, and developing each of those helped develop those particular champions that came out of the time I was coaching. Okay, now that you have a philosophical concept in place, and each of you, I'm sure, that are listening have this philosophical com uh, uh, idea in place, uh, and if not, then you probably should sit down and examine and figure out why you're doing it once you have it in place now how do you as best as you can ensure that whatever goals you have for yourself as a coach will happen how do you do that how do you ensure that whatever philosophy you have as a coach all the results of that will come true 
Well, guess what? There is no guarantee that the goals will happen. We all know that. Stuff happens along the way, sometimes stuff out of our control. But there is a way that you can be certain that everything that you do, human being possible do, to hopefully have success can come to be. Let me explain. One, there is a world of difference as a human being in trying to win as opposed to committing to win. There's a, human, there's a world of difference between trying to be the best as opposed to committing to be the best. When you try to do something, you're in effect giving yourself an out. This is a little scary, but it's true. Well, I tried. You know, I really tried, but it just didn't work out today. All right. And to me, that was, I don't want to use the word cop out, but it wasn't quite fully committed. It wasn't quite fully there. I tried and the other guy was just a little bit better that day or the wind blew in my face or my shoestring broke or something like that. When you commit to win, there is no out. Anything short of fully achieving whatever goal you have for that particular contest or whatever is deemed a failure. That's a little scary. That's a tough stance, you would say, right? Well, when you line up for the finals at the Olympic Games or the state high school meet or the tryouts to make the junior high team, that's not an easy task. All right? That's not an easy task. And making a commitment and understanding that you did everything possible to try to make that dream come true, to make that uh, goal a reality, uh, you did. You turned over every stone. You looked at every particular angle, and you prepared as best you could. It doesn't guarantee that you will be successful. But if you're not successful, after the pain and anguish wears off, you can walk away and look at yourself in the mirror and said, you know what? I did everything possible I could. It just didn't work out. Let me give you a story. Let me give you a story maybe to explain it. Montreal, Canada late July 1976, the Olympic Games in Montreal, bicentennial summer, uh, patriotism really high in the United States. Bruce, now Caitlyn Jenner, all right, eight PRs in 10 decathlon events. Eight out of 10 decathlon events, he scored a PR. And then he set an Olympic record, I think, in the discus. So that was, in effect, nine out of 10 PRs. He won the gold. He broke the world record. He beat the defending champion, Nikolai Avilov. Two months in front of the games, maybe three months even in front of the games, he met with a reporter and said, point blank, I'm going to Montreal with, for one reason and one reason only, and that's to win the gold medal. When I heard that, 1976, when I heard that, I listened and said, I don't know if I could make a statement like that in any aspect of life. That is unbelievable. He was leaving himself open for all kinds of darts being thrown if, in fact, he didn't achieve the gold. But that's commitment. And as a result of that commitment, look at what happened. Eight, nine personal records and a gold medal. Here's another story. Uh, I was coaching an athlete in, 19, in the mid, early 90s up until the late 90s, Brian Brophy. He scored 82-76 as a decathlete. 
we were in Atlanta in the Olympic Stadium. The Olympic Stadium just opened up in 1996. I think it was in June. And uh, they put on a meet so the athletes in the United States especially could get there and prepare for the trials and then obviously the games in, in late August. Uh, the Visa Decathlon team set up a three-event contest in, um, for the decathletes, shot put, hurdles, and pole vault. Brophy did pretty well in the shot and hurdles. And then it came to the pole vault. Uh, he um, uh, missed his opening height, 15 feet, 1 inches, twice. Uh, there was a lull in the action. All of the people now in the stadium are watching Brophy standing on the runway for his third attempt at 15-1. He looks up in the stands and yells to me, Harry, I got the feeling. I got the feeling. So everybody now is focused on him. They know if he fails on his third attempt, you know, he's going to go up and smoke. He won't, he won't place in this contest that we had. Uh, he smoked that bar. He cleared that. I asked him later afterwards, uh, I said, why did you do that? Why did you put even more pressure on yourself? He said, I needed that pressure. I needed that so I would commit even further. And that's what the great athletes do. So commitment, the difference between commitment and trying is a world of difference. All right. I think you see and you understand, uh, you know, kind of what I'm talking about here and what I spoke to on this topic today. Let's create a segue into how and why passion, knowledge, trust, and communication are four primary domains that need to be fully developed if, in fact, you expect to become the very best coach you can be. All right. In the halls, many of you, maybe most of you coaching, listening to this podcast or coaching within the junior high school, the high school, the junior college or the collegiate uh, system. You're in the halls of academia. Let me make a statement. In the halls of academia today, no one faculty position is more important than that of the coach. Whoa, whoa. Holy cow. How can you say that? You mean more important than the math professor, more important than the English professor, more important than the language professor, more important than the history professor? Let me, let me explain that. It's been my philosophy and it will remain my philosophy that the full and complete education of the human being is founded on the Greek ideal of complete development of one's mind, body, and spirit. The coach in his role touches base on each one of these components. It's a simple understanding. The mind, obviously, teaching technique in track and field. All right. You're, you're working the mental aspect of it. All right. And then obviously the body, you're preparing as a coach, you're preparing the athlete to accept the rigors of the particular event, sport, or whatever you're teaching him. And then the spirit. And the spirit isn't just about rah, rah, hip, hip. It's also about coming back from failure, because as you well know, we all learn more from failure than we do from success. So the coach, different than the English teacher or the math teacher or science, those guys are important. They're very important. But the guy that touches or the gal that touches on all three components of mind, body and spirit are re is really the coach. All right. So that's important. All right. And that leads us then into passion, knowledge, trust, and communication. All right, before I say that, though, those four elements of which need to be developed have to be housed in one particular word, 
ethics. If the ethics of the coach are not such that everything you're doing is for the betterment of that particular athlete, the honesty, the integrity, the respectfulness, et cetera, et cetera, has to be there in order for passion, knowledge, trust, and communication to be fully developed. We all know, I don't have to sit here and tell you, we all know of the problems that have existed, not only in track and field, but in other sports, in gymnastics and soccer and, and whatever, the um, injustices done to athletes along the way. It's all in the news. We know about it. All right. That cannot be. The ethics of the coach have got to be beyond reproach. You can push the envelope, but you got to stay within the lines. You got to play by the rules. All right. And you have to teach that and show that every day. All right. Let's move into now the four aspects passion, knowledge, trust, and communication. All right. Passion. Each and every one of you sitting out there, all right, listening to this podcast, if you expect to reach your goal in whatever it is you're doing, and in this case, let's say coaching, you better have passion for what you are doing. If you don't have passion, you can still be, quote, successful. Will you be the very best you can be? I don't think so. I don't think so. You really have to dive into it and have a complete and utter passion for it. The coach must instill this passion on his athletes by the passion he shows himself. Okay, let me give you some examples of passion. And kids can read into this pretty easily. Be at practice as a coach an hour to an hour and a half early. Don't show up three minutes before. Be there early. Prepare. Get everything set up. It was always a goal of mine to have, if we were going to hurdle that day in long jump, the hurdles are set up, the pit's dug, uh, the measuring tape is laid out, you know, whatever. So the athletes don't have to be responsible for that. They can, they can, that can be part of their growth and development as time goes on. But if I want to focus on really teaching them something specifically in the hurdles or a long jump, I don't want them thinking about setting your hurdles up and so on and so forth. That's our job as a coach. Prepare your lesson plans for each day based on observations from the previous practice. Don't just show up at practice with an idea of saying, okay, what are we going to do today? Have a plan and have those lesson plans uh, well-documented. Think about them uh, the evening before, the morning before that practice. That's why I never showed up less than an hour and a half early. As I was setting up the hurdles and I was reviewing what lesson plans I wanted to go over that day. This athlete has this problem with his lead leg or trailing leg or lead arm or something like that. How am I going to say it better and what have you? Educate your athletes as to the history of their events. Every athlete needs to know who went before them, whether it's in the high school situation, who the school record holder was, what he or she was like, what kind of work ethic they have. Or if you go to a higher level in uh, preparing for the Olympic Games or something like that, uh, who went before you? Tell them in decathlon and heptathlon about Jackie Joyner Kersey, Caroline Kloof, uh, Rayford Johnson, Bill Toomey, Caitlin Jenner, you name it, Dan O'Brien, all right, all of those guys, uh, Brian Clay. Uh, let them know about those people. And they'll, little by little, realize, hey, I can be one of those guys. 
I can be that school record holder. And don't sugarcoat failures. Another idea of passion. Don't sugarcoat any failures, but be supportive in restating to the athletes what you agreed upon as your goals at the onset of the season and that those goals have not disappeared. You just took a backward step. We backward steps get lost along the way. Tomorrow will be better. Be supportive of them. All right. I think you can understand and see what passion is all about. Let me summarize passion. And then maybe Mike might want to interject a, a thought or two. Summary of passion basically is this. Life must revolve around what you are doing as a coach and not vice versa. It's a tough statement. That's a tough statement. But I always wanted to be sure that every rock was turned over to make sure we did everything possible with no guarantee of success. But at least after it was all over, you could look in the mirror and say, I did everything possible in order to make this thing work, work correctly. Mike? I love that, Harry. What a great start here today in this podcast. When you talked about passion as it relates to those that came before, uh, it's, it's interesting. I was never a history fan at all going through school. Uh, and then outside of school, as I, uh, when I was going through my coaching career, uh, I became a, a student of history in relation to coaches that came before me, athletes and the uh, events that I um, uh, coached. So I love that aspect of holistic coaching uh, in the package of passion as it relates to those that came before the athlete and the, whether it's the Olympic games, NCAAs, who was there a coach before you that you modeled a, a passion off of? Um, there are probably a number of them, I guess, in, in a different different aspects, different tangents going into passion. I mentioned in the first uh, podcast, Cliff Lehman, my high school coach from 1961 to 65. Uh, he taught us the sport of track and field. He taught us to respect the sport of track and field, and he taught us how to work hard. And you could see that from those particular components of what he was trying, the points he was trying to get across to us, you could see his passion. So part of what maybe made me the coach that I am was that initial beginning by Cliff uh, showing his passion. And it, 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 it how would you say it, it coronavirus onto us, it caught onto us. <laughs> I knew if anybody could make coronavirus a positive, you would, Harry. That's awesome. <laughs> the other uh, and last, the other aspect, the next step, uh, when I left high school and then went to college, Jim Deegan was the head coach at Mount St. Mary's. Every day Jim Deegan came to practice. Every single day he was fired up. That guy was fired up about, you know, the wind blowing correctly. So you could see his enthusiasm and it just became uh, effervescence to you. Uh, and then all the other coaches along the way, Brooks Johnson and Sam Adams or whatever, they were totally and fully committed. That's a little higher level uh, after college, but they were totally and fully committed to being excellent, not just there, but being excellent. So all of those aspects of passion came out in that respect. I love that visual that you said there about those coaches and how they showed passion. You didn't talk about the coach who 
talked about passion. You talked about inspirational coaches that showed their passion with their actions. It reminds me of that saying, you can walk the walk, but can you talk the, or you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk really seems like passion is best served when you are walking within passion. So love that visualization. Where do we go to next after passion? PK. So K is knowledge, right? And, And inevitably, if I can start in here, inevitably, knowing what you're talking about in any aspect of life is critical. You don't want to get up there and just start spouting words and they're meaningless or really they don't make any sense or there's no logic behind it. So none of what, what you want to accomplish as a coach will ever come to be without a complete, thorough, and full understanding of what it is you are teaching. That's a powerful statement. Let me read it again. None of what you want to accomplish as a coach will ever come to be unless you fully understand, completely understand, and thoroughly understand what it is that you are teaching. Every coach, regardless of his level, needs to think about each event and figure out specifically what that event is asking you to do in order to be successful at it. What's the high jump asking you to do in order to be successful at it? Fundamentally, I think we talked about this the other day. Fundamentally, it's asking you to take linear or horizontal uh, acceleration, stop it on a dime, and change it into a vertical component. That's all it's asking you to do. The process then needs to be figured out. The process of how you do that, that's the technical aspect, needs to be figured out. Uh, To ensure that you are thinking clearly on this aspect of technique now, now you understand what the event is asking you to do. Now, how do you do that? Then, and this is important, then an understanding and an application of basic, simple laws of human movement, action-reaction, inertia, inertia, acceleration, is a must. You must become friends with Sir Isaac Newton. Those are simple, basic laws of human motion, action-reaction, inertia, and acceleration. And there's others. All right. That is critical. So that as a young coach, you're trying to figure out the technique of hurdling, high jumping, uh, running correctly, throwing your shot, whatever it may be. All right. And if you're sitting there in your room thinking about that, if you can back that up with a scientific principle, it gives you that much more confidence and tells you you're on the correct path. Let me give you an example here uh, of simple science. If I make this statement, speed of release is critical to distance attained. Speed of release is critical to distance attained. Example, all things being equal, everything else is equal. The shot put leaves your hand at 15 miles an hour. The shot put leaves my hand at 12 miles an hour your shot put is going farther. All things being equal, speed of release, the faster I can get that object moving, the farther it's going to go. Makes sense. Everybody understands that. That's simple. Okay. So how do you take that concept? That's that's basically a scientific concept, very simple, but very applicable. How do you take that concept and bring it into your teaching? Well, How do you, let's say the shot put, how do you then create the 
the most correct functional position at the front of the circle in which to apply forces to that implement, the shot, in order to get it moving at a high rate of speed. That's the technique involved. What do you do initially when you're placing your shot put on your collarbone or underneath your chin? Where do you place your elbow? How do you come square across the circle? Where's your acceleration pattern, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This podcast is not about technique. You can, you can talk technique later on if you want to come to one of my academies and what have you. But the concept here is that speed of release is what I'm trying to create. And then you dial the technique backwards. All right, here's another example. Uh, two things. Let me throw a question out there. Two things. Many things happen, but two things always happen when an object or a body is released from the ground. They, these two things always happen. What are they? Two things always happen when a body or an object, a body meaning uh, your human body, or an object, a javelin, a discus, a shot, or something like that, is released from the ground. Deceleration occurs and rotation occurs. They always happen. The object is always going to begin a tumbling, a rotation, always. And it's going to begin immediately to slow down. As you leave the board in the long jump, you're immediately going to to begin to decelerate. Why? Simply, you're not applying a force against the resistance anymore. All right, when you're on the ground, you're pushing against the ground, and therefore, if you're in the correct functional position, you're accelerating and what have you, okay? But as soon as you leave the ground, deceleration and rotation occurs. All right, let me give you an example. How does that fit into uh, teaching technique? How does that fit into knowledge? All right, at the moment of release in the long jump, the moment you're leaving the board in the long jump, Rotation is going to occur. We know that. If rotation occurs, what's the outcome? My extension of my feet is not going to be very good. All right? I'm going to come up short. And so instead of a 8-meter jump, it's going to be a 7-meter jump or, or whatever. It's going to be shorter because rotation is going to take over. I have to find a way to delay. I can't stop, but to delay the onset of rotation. And if I'm taking off my right foot, for example, that's checking of the rotation moment with my left arm, not letting it extend past the point parallel to my body. That's simple physics. That's simple understanding physics. And if you understand that, if you don't understand that, then you need to go back and talk to Sir Isaac Newton. Get, introduce yourself to him. It's, he's a pretty good guy. <laughs> Long dead, but uh, his notes are there. All right, so you want to delay the onsets of rotation so the body stays perpendicular and you can go through it. Then the next phase is deceleration. You want to be moving off the board in as quick a moment as possible. The foot needs to be right underneath you. The upper body needs to be perpendicular over the foot. And therefore, the less blocking or deceleration is is going to occur at the moment of takeoff. All right, so you've done everything possible to accelerate through the board, not to the board, but through the board, and you've done a little bit to check the on or delay the onset of rotation. And then the long jump could be pretty good. Okay, I think you got the idea of me driving uh, this point across relative to the application of Newton's laws of motion. Understand also that there are central nervous system implications and physiological principles and adaptations that most that must be both adhered to and understood. Applying these scientific principles after you thought about the event 
and how the event should unfold is like having a master professor uh, looking at you over the shoulder and telling you, you know what? You thought this through right and your concept and you can apply a scientific principle to it. You're right on. All right. You're right on. All right. In-service education on knowledge, continuing to learn and to grow by listening to this podcast. Hopefully you get some ideas out of it are going to do uh, and, and be important to you as relative to in-service education. Going to clinics and listening to master coaches is in-service education. Your knowledge will increase. Picking up the phone and talking to your colleagues that you trust uh, when you have reached a sticking point in the teaching of a skill to your particular a- athlete is in-service education. All of these and more, you need to keep continuing to learn. Uh, every athlete, is a human being and has a different idiosyncrasy of how you go, you want to try to get your points across. Throughout my, my career, I was constantly on the phone with colleagues of mine, Fred Samara, Princeton, Rick Sloan up at Washington State, Tom Pelez down at UCLA in Houston, colleagues that I fully trusted, always asking their opinion, getting your two cents out of it. We spoke to this a little bit in the first uh, podcast, but it's important to, to, to review it. All right, summarizing knowledge, winning success, winning and success cannot be left to chance. Otherwise, it'll just be be pure luck if you are successful this way. A full and complete understanding of what it is you are teaching puts you on the correct path to success. And you need, as a coach, to work at it daily. There wasn't an evening that I didn't lay down for rest without picking up some aspect of coaching and reading it. Maybe it was just a paragraph. Maybe it was a a chapter of a book or something like that. I was always trying to figure out a better way to say things. Seb Coe, good friend of mine and president of the World Athletics, now the former IAF, says it best. His quote is, great athletic performance without world-class coaching is just pure luck. And Seb knows because Seb's coach was his dad, Peter Coe. Tremendous, tremendous coach. Mike? You know, it sounds like you keep going back to physics. Is there a – so there's a lot of ways to skin a cat. So a lot of coaches are in the profession today with a lot of different majors. They may not have had a physics uh, background or even an intro to physics class. Is there a physics for track and field or some intro to physics book or um, course that you would recommend for someone to help get the basics down? Uh, Off the top of my head right now, no, I don't have uh, one. Jeff Dyson wrote The Mechanics of Athletics years ago. I think it's still in print, and it's it's pretty darn functional. if, if people want to read a book, it's ancient, but it's been redone a number of times. The Truck and Field Omni book by J. Kenneth Doherty. Every coach should read that. I had an athlete once that came to me as a decathlete, 6,700 points. Within the first year, he went 7,700. And then next year, he went 8,030 or 40 or something like that. And I kidded him and said, Bart, whoever your coaches were before you got to me, they were pretty good. They laid some great foundations. And he said, I did have good coaches, but I read that Omni book incessantly. 
And uh, so that's a good solid book. What I would do is I would just go to the basic laws of human movement, to be honest with you. You don't have to have, you can have a degree in, in English education. That's what my first degree is, was in. And then my second one was in physical education. Uh, but look up the laws of human motion. Look up Newton's laws. Understand a little bit about the central nervous system. Just read some basic stuff. Don't get into it real deep. Central nervous system, for example, if you're doing dynamic explosive work, you need 36 hours recovery time. And you, you fried those dendrites, all right, the, that, that cross over for movement patterns, all right, as you're firing. Uh, you fried those things. They need 36 hours to recover. So don't come back and do speed work or explosive work the next day. It's not going to happen. And it's dangerous and so on. So I don't have a book specifically offhand, but um, uh, pick up those different uh, aspects of um, uh, central nervous system movements and Newton's laws. I do have one book. I'm just thinking now aloud. Herbert DeVries. He was a professor out of the University of Southern California, and he wrote a book called, I think it was just simply called Exercise Physiology. And I used it in graduate school, I guess. And it was the most simplistic explaining book. Even a dummy like me could figure it out. Uh, uh, and I liked it. Herbert DeVries, Exercise Physiology. Look up something under the central nervous system and motor behavior and then Newton's laws of motion. Does that help? Those are great recommendations. I had forgotten about Omnibook. That is an amazing book. Uh, and even so much, one of my mentors, uh, Al Schmidt from Mississippi State, I, I can remember uh, on bus rides, him breaking out an intro to physics college uh, manual, uh, just always rehashing the basics, just always making sure those were top of mind to himself. So even things like that. Uh, and then another thing that you mentioned that has always impressed me specifically with track and field coaches is that network of coaches and how willing we are to talk to each other. Um, I think it's because we know there's no magic pill. So it's not like you're going to give away secrets, <laughs> uh, but uh, using other coaches that are out there that have that knowledge, uh, use your network, I think, is is real key uh, to that knowledge component. Uh, well, that, you're exactly right. And you're hitting it right on the head. And in effect, at this time now, when when none of us can be out there coaching uh, face to face type thing doing what you're doing and what Marissa's doing with her coaches collab and so on is a great way to learn. I mean, I never had that. I never had that opportunity. Uh, we didn't have computers and what have you. And as I said earlier, I would have to get on a plane and, and, and fly down to Tom's place or wherever and spend a week and hang out. So this is great. Yeah. Talking to your colleagues is critical. Throw your ego out and you don't know everything. Maybe you're pretty good, but you don't know everything and you can pick up some ideas from people. Well, I'm a big believer in crowdsourcing, which is just simply that uh, any number of people are smarter than any one person in that group. And so groups like the Coaches Collab are a great example of that. You've got now 2,200 plus coaches. Those 2,200 coaches together are smarter than any one coach. So uh, that's a, a real great asset uh, that we have coming out of this uh, crazy coronavirus time. That was great about knowledge. Uh, boy, some real, uh, you know, I, I put in the show notes that you are going to want to listen to this podcast at the beginning of every season. <laughs> so uh, I think that's, uh, that was a real great section there. I trust you have another good one coming up. What comes after knowledge? Key, trust, passion, knowledge, and then trust. Trust, if there's not a strong and confident bond of trust, 
between coach and athlete. If you haven't established that with your athlete, when a sticking point in teaching occurs and or your athlete gets backed into a corner during a competition, two bad throws in the discus, got to get the third one in, you know, whatever it may be, whatever you tell him or her is probably not going to work unless there's that trust established. Let me say that again. When an athlete gets backed into a corner, every and understand this, and you guys know this, every athlete gets backed into a corner. There's always going to be a problem. No meat runs the way you script it out on a, on a piece of paper, especially at the decathlon, heptathlon that I've been involved in. It's total chaos. All right. When they get backed into a problem, they're going to look to you for an answer. And the trust better be there so that they can believe in that answer and then do as you're telling them to do and execute correctly and, and make that next bar, get that next throw in and so on. It's a pretty powerful statement, but it's a true one. And let me just add now, just because you are the coach, the athlete should not just blindly trust you. You must earn his or her trust. How do you do that? Let me give you a couple of examples. One, when an athlete asks you a question, and this is constant, every one of you have been asked these type of questions, and you are not sure of the answer, the correct answer. Coach, why am I doing this, this, or this? All right, and you're not sure. I've seen it, and it's unfortunate. Some people just make it up. Don't make up an answer. Be honest with them. Go back to the ethics thing I talked about earlier. Be honest with them and tell them, I don't know, but I'll figure it out. All right. And then I'll get back to you once I do figure it out. This happened to me any number of times throughout all the years in coaching. It probably happened every second day or third day or something like that. And I couldn't answer the question specifically, but I said, I'll figure it out. Inevitably, I would go home, be thinking about this problem area or this question, maybe fall asleep, uh, whatever. And in the middle of the night, this happened to me a lot. Uh, you can you can talk to any of the athletes I coach over all the years. I'd pop up in the middle of the night, and the answer would be right there. And immediately, I run down, turn on the computer, and type off an email to the athletes because they'd see it at three o'clock in the morning. It's coming in or four o'clock or whatever. Uh, and coach has the answer. One that builds trust. They know you went home and did your homework on it. And two, if you do have the right answer, that builds trust even more. Okay. It's critical. The, the, uh, the, the idea of passion, the idea of knowledge are important, as we just alluded to. But without trust, all the knowledge in the world and all the passion in the world probably is not going to work. Let me just give you a little vignette story. Uh, we're going to talk, uh, I think Mike wants to talk about uh, the years at Oregon with Ashton Eaton and Brianne Tyson Eaton in the next podcast. Let me give you a little vignette into um, the development of trust uh, with both of them uh, as a, a step into what we're going to talk about in the next podcast. Uh, I arrived in Oregon November 3rd, uh, 2009. I came late because uh, Dan, the former coach, uh, left late, took a job at the University of Northern Iowa. And uh, I knew Dan real well. Dan was part of our national decathlon team, great decathlon, world championship competitor. I think he was seventh or eighth in the worlds in Seville in the 90s. 
Great athlete. Great, great guy. Great coach. So I'm there late in November. The NCAAs are indoors are in March of uh, that year, 2010. So what's that? November, December, January, February, four months later, four months. I'm there four months. So I'm still getting to know Ashton and the other athletes and they're getting to know me. You don't, doesn't just happen overnight. So we go to the national uh, championships back in Arkansas, the indoors, he's doing the heptathlon. And uh, before we left, the head coach, Finland Anna came to me and said, Hey, is Ashton ready to go? I said, yeah, he is. He's really ready to go. And I said, you know what, Vin? I said, uh, he's in great shape and he might be able to scare Dan O'Brien's world record. And I didn't tell Ashton this. I just told it to Vin, the head coach. I said, I don't know if he can get it, but he could probably give it a scare if he has a pretty good peak. Well, lo and behold, uh, he gets four PRs the first day in the the heptathlon, 60 long jump uh, shot and uh, uh, high jump. He jumped 611 that day. And then he uh, sets the uh, NCAA record in hurdles, runs 777, so another PR. And then in a pole vault, he jumped 16, eight and three quarters. I was hoping that he was going to jump 17 feet, that they had jumped 17, three indoors earlier and um, jumped 16, eight. So all of a sudden, we never mentioned anything about world record, nothing. He came over to me after the vault and it was now 45 minutes or an hour before the thousand meters, the last event. And he said, okay, coach, let's cut to the chase. What do I need? to break the world record. I said, Ashton, you got to run 234. He said, coach, a month ago in Texas, I ran 237. How am I going to run 234? And I looked right at him and everybody's around, the media's around, other coaches are around. I looked right at him and said, Ashton, I don't have a clue. I don't know how you're going to run 234. But I tell you what, I'll figure it out. You go with Lance Deal. Lance was our throws coach, was also our the team massage guy. And I said, you just get a nice relaxing massage and I'll come back to you and I'll have this figured out. So I walked outside. Everybody's telling me to do it this way, do that way. I walked outside, sat underneath the tree. And I said, I got to figure this out. And I got to figure this out. Not so much that he breaks the world record, but that the plan to break the world record, maybe physically he couldn't do it. Uh, run 234. I don't. I didn't know at that point. The plan was the correct plan. So that if he came up a little bit short, okay, you'd be disappointed, but it would serve you well the next time. All right. Uh, so I came back. I came back to him. He was just finishing up his massage, and I knew Lance was the perfect guy to give him a nice relaxing massage because Lance was the silver medalist in the Olympics. He knew about high pressure. So I said, here's what you do. Uh, I don't care how you feel you get to 600 meters in 130. That means 30, 30, 30. Try to run it even. Don't go out and run 25. Just run 30, 30, 30. You get to 600 in 130, even if you think you can't take one step after the 600. You just get there. Will you do that? He said, yeah, yeah, coach, I'll do that. He said, then what do I do? I said, then Ashton Eaton, you compete. Then you compete. You become a decathlete. You're a good quarter miler, 400-meter guy. I said, then you compete and you take off. So gun goes off. He gets there in 130 point something or other, runs 62 seconds, uh, five-second PR, uh, and breaks the world record. At that point, 
at that moment, because of the plan that I set up and he executed that plan to perfection, trust was established. That was within four months for the next seven years. It was fantastic. In Brianne's case, we were up in uh, 2014. Ashton had the year off in, uh, uh, from the decathlon. He was exhausted mentally from 10, 11, and 12, and 13 in Moscow. So I gave him the year off. He ran the intermediates. He's over in Europe running the intermediates, and, and Bree and I are up in, uh, in uh, Vancouver that summer in front of the Commonwealth Games. We're going to go over to Glasgow later in the summer. So we go to Vancouver and train up there. And we were high jumping at a very, very poor facility, meaning it was the high jump apron was set up off to the side. It was a goofy angle. It was hard to figure out the approach because the sight lines were bad, et cetera, et cetera. And I said, Brie, if you can figure it out here on this particular surface, you can figure it out anywhere. So she had pretty good practice, but then uh, she kind of got into a funk and, and it was stuck. And I said, uh, what's going on? He, she said, I feel great coming out of the back. I feel fantastic during my hop phase. And as soon as I get out of my hop phase, she has three more steps, a right, left, right after that. She goes, I go funky. I go squirrely. I said, you look good coming out of the back. You look good out of the hop. When you come out of the hop, if you feel good, Brianne, just trust it. Just trust it. So she did. She had a few more jumps that day. They were pretty good. I can't remember what, but they were pretty good. She goes to Glasgow. We go there a couple weeks later and uh, jump 6-2, lifetime best. She trusted it. She trusted it. So communication and trust is a critical component. Uh, the more honest you can be as a coach, the more knowledgeable you can become as a coach, all right, and the athletes see that, then the trust is going to build that much more. Final story, Paul Tarek was a decathlon guy, came from Michigan State out to San Luis Obispo with our world's greatest athlete club, uh, made the 2004 Olympic team. A uh, key event for him was the discus. He was throwing in the mid-140s, and no matter what I said, it wasn't the point wasn't getting across. So I called my good friend at Stanford, Robert Weir, was the throws coach up there, and I said, can I bring Paul up and can you take a look at him and just talk to him? We did that. Uh, Robert worked with him no more than 20 minutes. Fundamentally was saying the same thing I was saying, but with different language, different terminology. Paul's PR might have been 45 meters. He goes to the Olympic trials, throws 49 meters, makes the Olympic team because of that particular event. Yeah, he was steady throughout the decathlon, went 80, 300, and so on. So in short, the summary on trust is this. Once this trust has been established between you and the athlete, do not let anything come between what you have established with the athlete and the athlete has established with you. And as you well know, as your athletes get better, there's people on the outside will always come to them and tell them, I have a better way of doing it, or I can do better than, than your coach is doing and so on. Don't let that happen. Without the development of this trust, all the passion and all the knowledge in the world goes right out the door. Trust is that important, and it's a two-way street. The coach must trust the athlete, and the athlete must trust the coach. Mike? Uh, it's been my experience with trust that it's hard to gain but easy to destroy. What would you say to a coach who's been in the game for a long time who maybe is frustrated that – they feel like they have to 
reestablish their trust with a new crop of athletes every year. The example you gave, uh, which is absurd, but also um, right on point was with Ashton asking you like you having to regain or having to earn trust with Ashton. When you look at your body of work, it should have been like, well, Ashton, of course you're going to listen and trust to Harry. Look what he's done. Look who he's coached. Uh, but you had to, it was very important in a short amount of time, reestablish that trust. What do you say to those coaches who have been coaching for 20 years and feels like they are just owed trust from every athlete that comes? No in one is owed trust. No one. No one out there in the coaching profession is owed trust. I don't care if you've coached 160 Olympic champions and world record holders, whatever. You have to earn that every day. Because when you're dealing with uh, coaching, you're dealing with human beings. Every human being's psyche is a little bit different. So how you play to that psyche, you probably got to be a pretty darn good sports psychologist. Carl Lewis and I did a clinic in Costa Rica this summer. And we had a, they brought in, uh, NACAC brought in a sports psychologist to speak each day in front of us. 99% of what she said was really good. It was solid. But I said, geez, I did that. I did that. I'm not a sports psychologist at all, but that's part of the deal. So you have to earn that trust. One of the best things I can say is this uh, answer to your question is I remember at San Francisco state one day uh, I was talking to a little freshman and explaining something to him and he, you could just see it. He didn't believe me at all. He was just uptight. Didn't think he was going to be ready, et cetera, et cetera. An upperclassman, that had been there with me now. And I think he was a junior looked over to the kid and said, Hey, just shut up. Listen to Harry. He'll have you ready for the conference championship. So all of a sudden somebody on the team interjected what they experienced. And I think that kid uh, that I was talking to went on and placed him as a shot putter, placed in a shot put in the conference championship. So leaning on other people to help uh, is important. And, as we as to answer your question specifically, Mike, nobody is you have to show that every single day. You have to prove that every single day. And I love you alluded to ego in the knowledge component as well. Here in trust, you talked about ego when it came down to Ashton asking you, well, how am I going to do this, coach? I, I ran five seconds slower my PR in Texas. And you it, this that trust really started with those words of you know what i don't know you go do what you can control go to lance deal get your massage i'm gonna go out here and i'll figure it out uh so that drop of ego that you had there that lack of ego really seems like it kicked off and we're going to get into the real special part of of that uh career of ashton and brie in the next episode but it seems like that might have been like a real catalyst to kick off i knew i knew at that point you're exactly right and i knew that i had to figure out a plan and it had to be a good plan and it had to be a workable plan and as i alluded to uh could he run that fast i i saw that i was there for obviously in texas when he ran 237 and he gave blood. I mean, he was going hard and he couldn't have run any faster than 237. That was four weeks or five weeks before the NCAAs or something like that. So, uh, uh, but I knew it had to be correct. And when he asked me that question, and I don't care whether it was Ashton Eden or Joe Smith or Mary Jones asked you the questions, I had to be honest. And I, he said, how do I do that? And right then at that moment, at that very moment, I didn't have a clue. So I just said, Ashton, I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue, but I'll figure it out. 
And then I did what I said earlier, like went home and slept on it. No, I didn't have that time. I had an hour. And everybody, his brother came up to me and said, he should run this kind of pace, that kind of pace and so on. I listened for five minutes and said, thanks guys. I got to figure this out myself. And I did. So it worked out really well. Well, kudos to you, not folding under pressure. As you mentioned, there's a lot of media around you. There's other coaches. Uh, I'm sure there were other athletes in that area as you were talking and you could have been easily no fault of your own just said, yeah, Hey Ashton, we're good. And give him some kind of pump up speech, but instead you didn't fold to that pressure and you, to gain trust, you looked them square in the eyes and just said, yeah, I don't know, man, but I'm going to figure this and, out and, and get back to you. And you know, and you're <laughs> saying that is good because that brings up another point. Uh, I always, as a coach, and I think every coach out there that's listening to this needs to use this mantra. Let me be responsible for for how the athlete does yay or nay if it's good okay i figured it out if if it's screwed up if, then it's my fault i screwed it up i didn't make the right call or i used the wrong strategy or something like that i always wanted to be in that situation i sure as heck didn't want to listen to somebody else simply because they were of a higher authority and say, do this, this, and this, and blindly do it without thinking it through and having it fail. I always had the, the philosophy saying, if anybody's going to screw it up, I'm going to screw it up. But then I'll only have to answer to me on this. And uh, uh, so I think that's important. I think the point you just made was very important. Now, I don't know if you put PKTC in this order for the reason I'm about to, what I'm suspecting. Uh, but maybe you did. It seems like through what we've talked about with passion and knowledge and trust up to this part that this last section here, communication, has really been woven in in between all of those. Uh, so as we go to the last section here, talk to us about the role of communication when you're developing. You're the a smart guy. Coaching. You're a really smart guy because, yes, that's why communication is at the end. It does encompass every aspect of passion, knowledge and trust in probably other areas. And in today's world, just as a, as, as a tangent, in today's world, kids especially are so much more comfortable texting back and forth and not communicating. Well, guess what? At the Olympic Games, at the state high school meet, and in, in most track meets, you can't have electronic stuff out there and you can't be texting out to your athlete, uh, you know, what to do on the next jump, throw, run, or whatever type thing. You have to communicate. And the art of communication, sadly, in my, I'm an old guy. I grew up when you look people face, face to face and, and you communicated your ideas across. The art of communication is going south. I made a talk along this line once. I said, how many wars probably started because of miscommunication? You said this, I said that, da 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 da, da. So yeah, your ideas, thoughts, and concepts across to the athlete is critical. The art of communication needs to be practiced and worked on each and every day in practice. So that as you practice, you're communicating back and forth to the athlete. This also goes with how you're teaching. For example, in October or November, when we're working on technique, I'm explaining that particular technique in a broad-based a uh, long, uh, verbose way with many, many cues. 
as we get closer to competition time, let's say April, May, June, or whatever, those that understanding of that particular event, the high jump, becomes one, two, or three words. So the communication line is down to one, two, or three words, and you've practiced that all the way through. It's a simplistic approach. And I always knew that in a stress situation, in a competition, you can't be sitting there trying to reteach the particular event. It better be short, square, and to the point. And I can bring up a story of that when we talk tomorrow or the next day on, uh, with Ash and Bree at the games. Uh, John Kennedy was my hero. I grew up in the 60s. I was 13 when he became president, and he made a great inaugural address on January 20th, 1961. I watched it live on my little black and white TV. Came out of uh, that uh, inaugural address with a lot of great quotes. But later in his presidency, he said this, and this is how I use this communication uh, line. Kennedy said, when the stakes are the highest and most desperate, i.e. the Olympic Games or the conference championships or state meet or whatever, when the stakes are the highest and most desperate, there must be both clarity and completion. Know the enemy and your goal and hold fast to what you are attempting to do. Let me read it again. When the stakes are the highest and most desperate, there must be both clarity and completion. Know the enemy and your goal and hold fast to what you're attempting to do. Was Kennedy thinking about coaching when he said that? I don't know, but it sure as heck fits. So every day in practice, we tried to develop clarity as to how we were saying things. And I listened to the athlete, how he or she was interpreting that and maybe coming up with cue words of their own that I used for them and so on. And then completion, two fouls in the discus. You got to get the third one in. You can't go and reinvent the wheel at that point. You got to stay with what you've done. You've practiced this now for six, eight, nine months, whatever. All right. Maybe you say it with a little bit more authority or you say it a little bit more specifically and so on. Uh, and uh, But you sure as heck don't change at that point. So as we built each year of a four-year cycle towards an Olympic Games, all right, the mantra became our calling card, clarity and completion. So much so that at the Olympic Games in London, for example, in 2012, Ashton Eaton went into those Olympic Games with a total of 18 words that defined the 10 events that he contested in the decathlon. 18 words. All I had to say in the long jump, for example, was one word, perpendicular. That's all I had to say. I watched the warm-ups. I watched his stride pattern. I watched how he moved out of the back. Uh, I watched his midpoint you know, and how he was moving through the board. And if all that was on and typically was on because we practiced that stuff, then I would just remind him perpendicular. And he understood and knew what I said. So when you get to a major competition, you can simplify it as easy as that. It, it, it really helps. So as a summary to communication, in today's world of texting athletes, it can't be done. The art of communication verbally needs to be practiced and practiced and developed to its fullest. Mike? 
Harry, how do you, through your career, this is a really good, I'm glad we're talking to you about communication. As you've gone through your career uh, of almost 60 years now, one thing has been fairly constant. The athletes have stayed roughly the same age, 18 to 25-ish, let's just say. Uh, but you've consistently gotten older. <laughs> now, don't, don't get mad at me yet, Harry. Let me... <laughs> But as the athletes, as you've gone through the decades here, the athletes have gone through the decades in their own 18 to 25 year range. So they've changed. You, you made a mention about today's athlete being much more comfortable, maybe text messaging than face to face or things like that. And even in today's world, you know, we've got kids that are uh, video conferencing at the age of nine and eight. And some of us are just doing that for the first time at 40 right. and 50 years old. How did you adapt or or not adapt? How did you make the other the athlete adapt with the changing styles of communication? I think uh, one, I always enjoyed what I was doing. Uh, You know, I wanted to coach. uh, I wanted to teach and uh, going, getting in the car and driving off to work every day was not going to work. It was going to play. It was just play. When I was at San Francisco State all those years, uh, great, great memories. And I remember I was on the track, as I said earlier, from nine to five, nine to six, whatever. So I'd lay on a high jump pit at lunchtime and, um, and eat an apple or, uh, you know, whatever sandwich and look around and say, you know what? I can't believe they're paying me to do this. I, this is just great. So if you keep a great attitude, you'll kind of, and you list, you look at the athletes and you look at the nuances and how they're carrying themselves and what's important to them. And you don't become phony, but you fit in with them and you play to what they're comfortable with. I think that's important. It's adaptation. Coaching is really nothing more than making adjustments. And if you have these four components of passion, knowledge, trust, and communication, and you fully develop them, then you can make those adjustments. So I always enjoyed being around athletes. And to be honest with you, I honestly think being around athletes helps the coach more than than the coach helps the athlete because it keeps you young. It keeps you young. You're learning all these different things about what's going on in the world that you really don't know anymore because these kids are really in tune with it. Uh, That's awesome. I love that. You mentioned adaptation, which – uh, fits in perfectly with a lot of coaching uh, philosophies and styles in regards to like the law of adaptation. So always being adaptable uh, to the kids and their situations and where they are at that time uh, seems like that has kept you uh, young in that sense, Harry, because you have been able to relate to 20 to 25 year old athletes today, as you did 40 years ago in a very high athletic <laughs> manner. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's, it's been good. It's been good. It's been fun. It's been fun. And that, that I always try to, to bring the element of fun into practice every single day. I wanted to, you know, be a good coach, but I also wanted to create a learning, a good learning environment and passion, knowledge, trust, communication, and other aspects came into that. But I always wanted that environment to be a fun learning experience. I alluded earlier, I think in the earlier podcast at Oregon, especially, I mean, that was intense. Those kids walked underneath the West grandstand, the former West grandstand uh, for practice in the winter and their game faces were on. It was intense. You had to lighten that up every once in a while. Hey, we're going to have fun today. We're going to get the job done. 
we're going to try to move through that penultimate a lot better. You know, you're, you've really been messing up with that thing. Let's get that thing figured out, how to do it correctly. But we're going to have fun doing it. So we make up games. I'll tell you a quick example. Uh, I can tell you with Ashton, he was struggling. You know, he got into a funk in the long jump once. Uh, I think it was in front of Rio, maybe uh, the, that winter in front of Rio. We went right back to what he did as a kid. We put a uh, piece of rope down at the long jump takeoff board, which he did as a kid in his backyard. And then he put a piece of rope out at seven feet when he was a little kid. He ran down, took off of the one rope and jumped over the other and then uh, kept moving that rope farther until he couldn't jump any further. We did the same thing in the long jump pit at Hayward. And uh, I kept moving the, the rope out farther and farther. I moved it out to 25-6 at one point during that practice where he made the adjustment. He jumped over it in practice. 25-6 in practice, not so bad. That's a great story about the yeah. inner kid in all of us. <laughs> wow. And, and, and also, that's a real good um, combination of PKTC is totally there. The passion of track and field as a kid and as the coach, the knowledge to know how to work with your athlete there, the trust from the athlete that, okay, my coach wants me to do something I would, did when I was seven. What's he talking about? He trusted and then to communicate that throughout the practice. Boy, that is a real wrap up of all PKTC together there. Um, and as we do wrap up, Harry, I wanted to uh, ask you, you mentioned in the introductory of PKTC today about that this all has to come under the umbrella of ethics and your morality. You've gone through 60 years now of track and field internationally. Uh, there had to have been temptations to skirt the rule, to do something that is, was not within those guidelines that you mentioned. Uh, how did you, what was your driving force to always stay on the right path and not give in to the, the easy, but long you know, path? that's a good question. And I had, I came up in the sixties. Okay. The drug use was prevalent before that. The drug use was prevalent in the fifties. I knew about it in the fifties when I was a young kid, I won't mention names or anything like that, but I could tell you specifics about it. And I, maybe because, let's go right back to my high school coach who taught us the sport, taught us how to work hard, how to push the envelope, do as much as you could, but respect the sport, stay within the rules. So maybe it was set then. And I had enough of an attitude saying, you know what? These guys, gals, whoever that are taking these drugs, I can kick their butt. I can find a better way to kick their butt. You don't need that nonsense. So that was always an underlying principle. When an athlete I had did really well, and I kind of had a suspicion that maybe the person they just beat or whatever was fooling around with something, that made it a little bit more, a little nicer saying, you know what, we don't need that stuff. So I think setting that up right from the beginning, and isn't that what a parent is supposed to do with their kids when you're raising kids? Forget about coaching and stuff. You know, set the right morality and, um, ethics course is beginning and hopefully the kid bites on that and takes that and so on. So I got a kick. I got a kick to be honest with you out of, I knew these guys were fooling around and stuff like that. I'll give a damn. I'm going to kick their butt anyway. So maybe that helped. It sounds like, cause you talked about, you know, did it start maybe from the beginning? It sounds like 
the the people that you surrounded yourself with are what helped you also to always remember when well, they're counting on me, I'm counting on them to do the right things at the right it's time important. all the time. It's really important. I mean, yes, you as a coach, you want your athlete to become the best he or she can become in whatever discipline they're working on. But there's only one, Mike, you know that. There's only one Olympic champion. Is everybody else that's involved in that Olympic Games, London, Rio, Athens, whatever, are they losers? Absolutely not. They're not losers. They just didn't happen to win the gold medal or bronze or silver or whatever like that. So there's winning all the way along the line. And if you get the gold, that's great. But if you get 12th place and you played by the rules uh, and you did the best you possibly could, that's great too. Uh, I'm going to be tempted to put the um, the Yoda or Mr. Miyagi uh, quotes on there about trying versus committed. <laughs> I loved your examples there of uh, trying allows you a cop out and committed uh, allows you to go out and do your best. Harry, you and I are a lot aligned. You know, we started this podcast to bring value to coaches and your career has always been about bringing value to athletes. And now your career is swinging to bringing value to coaches. So I can't say thank you enough for today's uh, really lesson. I, I really do think there is a lot to learn there. Uh, not only if you are a first year coach, you're a 30 year coach. If you're not a coach, if you're not an athletic coach, because <laughs> we're all coaches in some part and fashion uh, as we are parents or teammates at work. But I think there's a lot to learn here uh, for business world, how to run your own track program, how to run your own business. So, uh, so much value today, Harry. Thank you. You're welcome. And thanks for having me. Love ending there on the moral compass, if you will, the ethics uh, that really drives being a professional track and field coach in this world. And by professional, don't get it twisted. I don't mean coaching professional athletes. If you are a middle school, uh, youth club, high school, college track and field coach, you are a professional. And listening to podcasts like this helps you become better. Well, guys, I hope you received as much value from Harry's interview as I did. This was a fun one for me. Found it extremely interesting uh, as he talked about passion, knowledge, trust, and communication. Uh, I certainly am going to be a better sales professional from listening to him, and I know you will be a better track and field coach. If you've made it this far, thanks for joining us. Your time and attention are super valuable. We certainly don't take that lightly. We appreciate that you decided to spend that time with us today. Want to know when future episodes of the podcast are available? The best way is to subscribe to the podcast in the app you are listening to right now. Go ahead and do that right now. Go subscribe. In the meantime, if this episode of the Gale Athletics Connections podcast provided you value, would you consider sharing it to your network? This way you can provide others with the same value you received. That's it for today, folks. Can't wait to join you next time. Part three of Harry Mara. We're going to have a lot of fun. It's story time for Coach Mara here as we talk about just an amazing special time in track and field as he coached Ashton Eaton and Ashton's wife, Breanne Tyson Eaton. Don't miss it. Can't wait to see you next time. Episode 27 of the Gale Athletics Connections podcast.